0: Welcome to the Mornings with Sue and Andy podcast for Wednesday, March 2nd. We begin with the latest on the war in Ukraine. We speak with Robert Haig, fellow of the School of Public Policy and former director general with Foreign Affairs in charge of Russia and Ukraine. We ask Robert his thoughts on what sort of an impact economic sanctions will have on Russia and if they're enough. Next, it's another edition of Ask the Doctor with Dr. Craig Janney, infectious disease specialist from the University of Calgary. As always, Dr. Janney answers COVID-19 questions as sent in by you, the listeners. Then we look at how the COVID-19 pandemic has affected our mental health and whether the past two years could influence an increase in post-traumatic stress disorder cases for Canadians. We discuss with Margaret Eaton, National CEO of the Canadian Mental Health Association. And finally, he's the smartest person in the bar, and now he's written a book on it. We meet Austin Rogers, former Jeopardy! champion and author of the new book, Ultimate Pub Trivia.
1: Russian forces are targeting major cities and infrastructure in Ukraine as the war rages on. We're joined this morning by Robert Haig, fellow at the UFC's School of Public Policy and former director general with foreign affairs in charge of Russia and Ukraine. Good morning to you, Robert. Thanks so much for being with us. Pleasure. Let's uh, let's pick at your expertise here. I mean, it doesn't seem like this war is playing out as President Putin imagined. He likely thought he was going to walk in there quite easily and do what he wanted. Uh, was this invasion a miscalculation? And what do you think will be the consequences of that?
2: Well, it's a mis- miscalculation, certainly, but not one that uh, President Putin recognizes. Sadly, and I don't think he's going to quit easily um, he uh as we know in 2014 he took over um uh, Crimea and and then the uh, bordering area of Donbass and uh with uh, with uh, troops from Hungary, uh, from Russia that he didn't admit were there and now he's uh, surprisingly i think for many people taking trying to take over the whole country so i don't think he's going to quit easily i think he's going to feel um, it is certainly more difficult than he thought. Um, the sanctions that were put on after he occupied uh, Crimea were not terribly heavy. These are huge sanctions, and it's going to take some time, but they're going to cut into the, uh, the Russian people. They've already seen their ruble uh, lose half its value. Uh, Gazprom has lost 98% of its value on the London, London Stock Exchange. They're being hit, but I don't think he's uh, planning on taking his troops out of uh, Ukraine very soon.
0: It's interesting, Robert. We had those talks a couple of days ago that seemed to not move the needle whatsoever. And uh, today, in the next handful of hours, it looks like there will be another meeting between Russian representatives and uh, Ukrainian officials. Uh, if if nothing is going to come of this, if, if you think that he's on the path, uh, just going through the motions, you think that's what's going on uh, through uh, Vladimir Putin's you know, thought process? Well-
2: well, Churchill once said, cha-cha is a better than wah-wah. Mm-hmm. Uh, in other words, talk is better than war. And that's always the case. I mean, you can't say, no, they're, they're useless or they're... But they are, you know, they are representatives of each side. It's not uh, the president talking to Mr. Putin. Um, so it's, it's something that uh, so far not much has happened. I don't think they're making many statements to the press. My guess is that Russia is continuing... To insist that uh, that Ukraine uh, pledge never to join NATO uh, and perhaps to fall more in the Russian orbit. I don't know what the talks are, but um, it's going to take some time, I think, to negotiate um, the Russians out of this. And there might be a point at some stage where the Russians really do want to get out, but don't want to lose face. And we haven't raised that or we haven't reached that uh, point yet.
1: Yeah, I was going to ask you that. Do you think that it will ultimately be Putin that rethinks the decision based on what the world is is doing and forcing upon him or will the Russian people rebel now that it seems they are starting to understand exactly what's going on not just the misinformation they were fed by their leader and feeling the effects personally I mean they can't even use you know their credit cards
2: yes um It'll be uh, Mr. or uh, President Putin's uh, decision in the end. And we only have to hope that the Russian people will be able to influence him. Uh, They're doing everything they can in Russia now to shut down any information that comes from outside the boundaries of Russia and that they are relying solely on the... um, on on Russian uh, propaganda networks, um, but that is a challenge now in Russia. And this is a, a, a reference now to the to the society we live in. It's very hard to shut down the internet. And so, a lot of Russians, I think, are getting their information—the true information—from outside of Russia. But it's going to take some time. I think that's the hope that the oligarchs will start to say, "Do we need this man?" And that the people themselves will be able uh, to to not oust him, but to express their grievance. But we're not there yet. I'm sure there's a lot of people in in, uh, in Russia who are very concerned about this and are hurting economically, which is what we want, actually. Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. I'm I'm wondering, Robert. Uh, you know, we've we've heard that the Ukrainian government, particularly President Zelensky, coming out saying we want to join the EU, we want to do this as soon as possible, we want to fast track it. What would it mean if the EU were allowed to, you know, accept the Ukraine or Ukraine rather, uh, you know, immediately? Uh, what 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 changes would that I- I- you know influence, and what would the Russians think of that?
2: Uh, you know, the the EU uh, it takes time to join the EU, and the the countries that. Um, that joined, um, uh, for like Hungary, uh, where I was an ambassador, and, and Poland, and Romania, and Bulgaria, and they all joined in stages, and then finally Croatia. Um, and it took some time. The Baltic states also joined, and and that's taken time. But it's 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 not a process. Russia or U- Ukraine is not in line to be joining the EU. They're they're able to sign agreements with them, and that was what triggered uh... crisis in twenty ten when uh... the um the russian uh... pro-russian um uh president of ukraine uh, sort of fled the country in a way because he changed uh, the, the policy of trying to get an engagement an ongoing engagement with the european union not membership but different agreements uh, of cooperation and uh, when he backed out of that there were riots in in ukraine and he fled to russia so The EU is extremely supportive right now. And for the first time, they're actually sending weapons into Ukraine. How they're going to get there, I guess, remains to be seen. But they're united in that. And the EU has never taken on that military role before.
1: Robert, thank you so much for sharing your knowledge and your expertise with us. Appreciate your time.
2: A pleasure. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Robert Haig, fellow at the School of Public Policy and former director general with foreign affairs in charge of Russia and Ukraine. Alberta's COVID restrictions have for the most part now been removed, but is the provincial government moving too quickly with insight into uh, this and all things COVID and the pandemic? We are joined once again this morning by Dr. Craig Janney, Associate Professor, Department of Microbiology, Immunology and Infectious Diseases at the University of Calgary. Good morning, Dr. Janney. It's been a bit.
3: Good morning. Yes, it
1: has. Great to chat with you again. Uh, Since we last spoke, I actually uh, had COVID. So I'm curious, I hear this from other people too, in terms of natural immunity now, uh, from having the, the virus itself, and I've had three shots, curious, you know, natural immunity in particular, how long, do we know how long that can last?
3: It seems to vary patient by patient. So the general observations are the natural immunity does not last as long as the vaccinated or boosted immunity. Now, in in this situation, we're talking about natural immunity on top of vaccine immunity. So that's a very good mix. But natural immunity alone seems to fade. And one reason why it's, it's variable between individuals is it does seem to be directly tied to the severity of your symptoms. So people that have a rather mild course of COVID seem to get less immunity from it. And people that mm. were unfortunately severely ill tend to emerge with stronger immunity.
0: Interesting. Hey, I want to ask you about, you know, hey, what stage of the pandemic are we in? Are we truly in the endemic stage? And... With the easing that we've seen going into day two now, are we expecting to see cases on the rise?
3: So the the endemic stage is going to be a point where we are seeing sustained and predictable levels of viral spread. So unfortunately, endemic versus pandemic doesn't mean it's less severe. It doesn't mean the disease is milder. It's really a measure of how this is spreading, not just locally, but globally. So, you know, we will continue likely to see waves in other places. We will continue to see hot spots. And if those hot spots are, are, are spread around the world, this will remain technically as a pandemic for a while. In Canada, as those waves smooth out, we will be entering more of an endemic Phase. So the question is, will we see another wave? And, and it's difficult to predict. What we are seeing right now, unfortunately, with the current situation, is numbers, although they're coming down, great sign, really encouraging, they're coming down much, much, much more slowly than previous waves. So we have seen you know, a plateau in, in what we thought were new cases, or at least wastewater testing now for more than a month. But our hospitalizations are not dropping nearly as quickly as they were in previous waves. So, you know, this has now reached a level of community spread that is quite high. And we'll have to see if it starts to go up after these final restrictions are lifted.
1: So does that mean the people who are ending up in hospital are sicker? Or what do you make of that? Not necessarily,
3: and what we are seeing right now is with the current virus, and a lot of that has to do with many of the people who are catching it or, for example, even needing hospital, may be vaccinated or partly vaccinated. Hospital stays appear a little shorter, so people are less sick, but more people are exposed to the virus, and our infection rates are still uh, quite high. If we look at things such as wastewater, it's come down in the last few weeks. Great news, but it has not come down to the levels that we had seen after previous waves. So there's still a lot of sustained community spread.
0: So I'm wondering, you know, with people having the option now to, to not wear a mask at the grocery store, at restaurants and uh, uh, public places, are we are we planning on seeing an increase in cases?
3: We, we unfortunately likely will. The, the, the big question is how high? And, and these are the numbers that were taken into consideration. How much increase can we tolerate within the, the current healthcare system? So these are based on how many people have been vaccinated, what level of infection has occurred in the province in the previous waves. And those two numbers, I mean, we are unfortunately the lowest vaccinated province in Canada, but we've also likely experienced the highest infection rate in Canada. So we will have the largest contribution of natural immunity.
1: I suspect we have a pretty high level of fatigue in this province too. So. And,
3: uh, absolutely.
1: Your thoughts, then, you know, in the medical community, did we did we rush to ease the restrictions, or is this? So, do you think it makes sense?
3: I, I think most of the front line would have liked to have seen a, a little more margin of error. So hospitalizations are still high, which simply means we do not have a lot of room if there is an uptick, and and that is the big concern at the moment. So I think we're, we're well on our way. We're on the right path. The question is, are we, you know, a few weeks early? And it does seem strange that, again, the province with the lowest vaccination rate is the first one in the country to lift all restrictions.
0: Yeah, to that point, when we talk about, you know, moving ahead with this, living with it, uh, you know, we've had our booster shots for the most part. People are trying to get them. Uh, but the fourth booster, is, mm-hmm. is that going to be offered? And if so, when would something like that be offered up
3: here? Yeah, it's likely to be offered. We're not seeing that broadly around the world yet. Um, we are still right now encouraging people for that third shot, that the, the true booster. And the data on that one is is remarkably clear that, when we hear that the vaccines are no longer effective against things such as Omicron, that is in the, the, the standard two-dose vaccine. That third booster is remarkably protective against uh, not only infection, but hospitalization, intensive care unit, and such. So uh, that, that's something we do really need to encourage people who are willing to be vaccinated to ensure they, they seek out that booster when available, um, because it, it does seem to be a game-changer, at least in the, the ability to control this virus.
1: So do we call that a, a fourth shot, a second booster, or do we just start calling things our yearly, you know, shot that we're going to get like a flu shot?
3: Yeah, it, it may may turn out to be yearly. We, we still don't know, and that, that's the, the real question. So the, the first two doses remained quite effective against Delta, and Omicron has changed that. And, and not only is the virus a little bit different with Omicron, but we are now. If we think about people who got their first doses of that vaccine, we're talking... Uh, for most of us, well over a year now. You know, we, we were vaccinated, many people were vaccinated at the end of 2020. So this is maybe not surprising. The, the real question becomes, as we get a few boosters, does that immunity last longer? And that's what we see with many of our childhood vaccines. We often get three shots for, for many of those vaccines, but then we get long-lasting immunity. At the same time, we'll have to keep an eye on how quickly this virus changes and when new variants do emerge and how they uh, respond in vaccinated
0: people. Very interesting. We've got a, a handful more of questions for you, Dr. Jenny uh, Can we keep you for another two minutes? For sure. More with Dr. Craig Janney, infectious disease specialist from the University of Calgary. And uh, Dr. Janney, here's my question for you. Now that masks are no longer mandated, uh, what, what is your personal stance? If you're going to the supermarket or the shopping mall, for example, public spaces indoor, uh, are you masking up still?
3: Yes, I, I, you know, depending on the the space, if if it is a crowded space, supermarket, uh, for sure, uh, at least for the foreseeable future, until we can get those numbers down in the community a little bit, um, you know, we've we've discussed as a family, and our personal risk is fairly low, but we do want to be able to interact, for example, with grandparents and and older family members, and we really just do not want to risk bringing that virus, for example, into their homes, so in smaller areas uh, where we're not required to wear a mask and and there are not people around, then it it would be safe to go without a mask in those situations. But other crowded areas, shopping centres, supermarkets, and specifically, we are required in areas such as transit and health care mm-hmm. facilities. So uh, I think masks will still be part of, of uh, aspects of our lives, at least for the, 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 the next few weeks to a couple of months until those numbers come down in the community.
1: Dr. Jenny, a couple of questions from texters just rolling in. This person asking, um, I had a bad case of COVID last March, a shot in June, second shot in August. Should I be getting the booster now or do you wait for a more targeted booster to come out?
3: Right now, the, the good news is, and I, I will fully admit, uh, quite surprising, to be honest, is the boosters remarkably effective, even against Omicron, uh, at least... For for every variant we've seen, including Omicron, so right now that the it's the cost benefit of it. If you are in a situation where you are concerned about exposure, uh, for example, may have an underlying condition and really need to avoid catching the virus, a booster now is the right call. If, however, you, you know you're in a, a very low risk group and low risk of transmitting to other people, you can wait a little longer and see what's in development. There are a number of Delta and Omicron boosters in clinical trial, but the evidence isn't clear as to whether they are significantly better than simply getting a third dose of the current vaccines.
0: All right, I think we have time for this one. Do I have to wait three months from when I tested positive for COVID to get my booster shot?
3: do not have to wait, but that is the recommendation from NASI. So the National Advisory Committee on Immunization is recommending that we ensure that the immune response from the natural infection has returned to baseline before trying to reboost that. There's no real safety risk. You know, if you you are uh, a few weeks out after, there's no uh, additional risk to to the person, but it just seems that the immune system responds better and you get more benefit from that booster if you're waiting that three-month window.
1: Uh, Back to um, uh, personal question for for me and I'm sure for others who've had it because so many people have now had the COVID with the Omicron but Mm -hmm. the sense of smell and taste it doesn't disappear for everybody I I had a little bit of taste but I lost my smell completely Mm -hmm. Uh, how long are you we seeing that sort of on average for for it to come back
3: yeah again that, that is entirely unfortunately patient dependent so some people do recover it fairly quickly other people it does seem to linger for for uh, months and months although it does slowly improve uh, there's not unfortunately no real way to predict when when one individual person will regain those those senses
1: thanks a lot for That's that so great.
0: <laughs> as we know just before we let you go we uh, let the uh, kids uh, first in, in school k-12 to not mm-hmm. wear masks i'm wondering uh, what your thoughts are having uh, you know a little bit of time behind us now with the kids not wearing masks in school uh, the impact what what are your thoughts
3: yeah The -the on-the-ground data seems encouraging. The numbers we're hearing about school closures and online shifts. However, we have to keep in mind that right now we are still missing so much data. We do so little testing as a province. Uh, Personal rapid tests are are not reported. So you know we do see that schools have higher absentee rates than they have in previous years. Uh, But we can't say that that's COVID. We don't know specifically what's causing this. But we do know that absenteeism is still up versus previous years. And it is Suggesting that COVID is is still circulating through the schools, but uh, you know the good news is that the classrooms have managed to keep going, and I think that that's the ultimate goal. Um, could it be easier if they were still wearing masks? Possibly, but it but it, it has not completely closed the schools, so that that is encouraging.
1: So great to have you back answering all of our questions. Thank you so much for your time this morning. You
3: guys are welcome. Take care.
1: You too. That is Dr. Craig Janney, associate professor, Department of Microbiology, Immunology, and Infectious Diseases at the U of C.
0: After two years of pandemic stress, will there be a long-term residual impact on our mental health? With details on the effect the pandemic has had on our health, we are joined by Margaret Eaton, National CEO for the Canadian Mental Health Association. Good morning to you, Margaret. Good morning. What has, uh, uh, Margaret, what has been the impact of pandemic-related stressors on our mental health?
4: Well, we just finished a survey um, that asked Canadians, how are you feeling And uh, what we found is people continue to be stressed. Over these last two years, the numbers have stayed fairly consistent that about um, 40% of Canadians say that their mental health has declined since the onset of the pandemic. And then if you've been unemployed during this period, that number is much higher. Or if you had a pre-existing mental health condition, about 54% of those people said that they have found the pandemic very stressful. So as you say, we're concerned about what's the long-term impact Of all of this anxiety, stress, and in some cases, anger that some Canadians are feeling.
1: Yeah, very much so. So can it be, Margaret, sort of like a PTSD where it can stay with you for a long period of time or or maybe kind of, you know, go away and then rears its ugly head again? Yes, that's exactly it. And in fact, this is what our
4: CMHA in Wood Bison found. Um, it was after the Fort McMurray fires. Uh, it was up to two years after people had returned back to their homes that they were still coming in to the CMHA to say that they were experiencing anxiety and depression as a result of the forest fires. So we expect there will be this kind of PTSD effect, which could last up to two years mm. after we've sort of returned to quote unquote normal
0: it's interesting to me margaret in the sense that you might already have some depression background you might be something you've been dealing with or, or some kind of ptsd and then this comes along that that's one thing but what if i've never experienced anything like depression how what are the signs like what how do i know that i've been affected enough that you know this has become an issue
4: Yeah, you know, we really encourage people to reach out if they're experiencing um, symptoms that are getting in the way of their daily life. So, if you're finding it's uh, difficult to cope with working or going to school, if you're having trouble getting up in the morning, if you're finding your relationships are strained because of your feelings, that might be a good reason to go in and talk to someone and to seek out some supports. There's also great online tools for things like depression and anxiety. We've got a, a free program called bounce back, which deals with mild and moderate anxiety and depression. And um, we've seen a real uptick in the use of those virtual tools over these last couple of years, and they can be very effective.
1: You know, and you you talk about that, Margaret, I think that it's really key we continue to talk about, you know, what mental health encompasses, whether it doesn't just have to be depression, it can be anxiety, it can be like a chronic stress. There's lots of different variations as, as to what makes up you know someone having a mental health issue yeah you're quite right and that issue of chronic stress is one that we saw
4: in our research that um, our concern is when you're dealing with these high levels of uncertainty it can really tax your your system and so we're starting to see this um, chronic stress which uh, some of the signs of that um, are feeling exhaustion you know, not having the energy that you would normally have, um, slow or reduced performance, irritability. Um, And, you know, that's in some ways a very normal response to what we've experienced, right? Um, Many more people have felt fear and uncertainty that they might not have felt in their lives before. But it's when it becomes an ongoing issue, um, when you don't see any relief from it, that you really need to seek out some help.
0: It's also, uh, you know, uh, not a one size fits all, I would think, Margaret, in the sense that we've all experienced, you know, a a vast change over the past two years, but how it's viewed and how it's, uh, you know, felt by senior citizens who maybe have really been shut in from their families, you know, people going to work, that's different, teens, even kids, it's got to be really interesting in your, uh, from your line of uh, work and from your viewpoint as far as the different effects on the different age groups.
4: Yeah, that's been very interesting. We know that uh, children and young people have been hit particularly hard. Um, the fact that schools have been shut down. I think you know probably kids at first thought, great, we don't have to go into school. Yeah. But it turns out that school is actually a really important part in children and youth's mental health. So I think that generation is a generation we're worried about and will need to follow to see what are the long-term impacts on children and youth. Well, people graduating from school and then entering this very 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 strange labor market, Um, it's just a very tough time um, for so many people. As you mentioned, seniors who have also dealt with loneliness and loss, uh, so many deaths that um, have been experienced through COVID has really taken a toll. And then we looked also at the LGBTQ population um, and Indigenous people and found that their levels of stress were much higher than even the average Canadian. So these are all populations that we really want to um, keep in touch with because they have been more vulnerable to the pandemic and are more vulnerable to the long-term impacts on mental health.
1: So, Margaret, let's talk a little bit about supports. We've got cmha.ca for the Canadian Mental Health Association website. But, you know, if people are looking for supports You know, whether it's counsellors or psychologists, that sort of thing, do we have enough of them now? Is Is the ability for folks to get mental health help out there, especially if they don't have the dollars to be able to pay for it? That is a huge issue, and it's something that we really saw spike
4: during the pandemic where people reached out for support and then couldn't find it. In fact, we found 17% of Canadians felt they needed help with their mental health but didn't receive it. And the reasons that they said they couldn't get help was they didn't know where or how to find it. Um, 36% said they couldn't afford to pay for it and 19% said their insurance wouldn't cover it. So some people are in a situation where they can get uh, psychotherapy or counselling services provided through an employer benefit package, but oftentimes that's only you know, that might cover two or three appointments. It's not going to give the give you the long-term support that you need. And so we found our own CMHAs in Alberta were definitely struggling to meet the demand. The phone was just ringing off the hook. And so our recommendation is that we need to have more investment in community mental health so that we can pick up the phone and provide support. And we really believe there should be publicly funded counselling and psychotherapy. So it shouldn't depend on whether you have an employer program that pays for it that kind of basic mental health care should be available to everybody for free
0: margaret thanks for shedding some light on this and spending some time with us this morning
4: thank you for your interest
0: thank you that is margaret eaton national ceo from the canadian mental health association
1: Are you smarter than 12-time Jeopardy! champion Austin Rogers? So he's got a new book out called The Ultimate Book of Pub Trivia. And this morning we have the pleasure of being joined by the smartest guy in the bar, Austin Rogers. Hi, Austin. Thanks for being with us. Hey, Sue. Thanks for having me on this morning. Okay. Pleasure to talk with you. Boy, this is, I mean, it's fascinating. I have a million and one questions for you, but you rank ninth in both highest winnings and consecutive games won on Jeopardy. When you were competing on the TV show, did you ever imagine that you, you would be that good? Like, did you, I obviously, you must know you're a smart guy, but did you think you were going to do as well as you did?
5: Absolutely not. All I wanted to do was go in there and win one. Because If you win one, you can say for life, I am a Jeopardy! champion. That's all. My goal was to win one. And when I won the first one, I go, okay, that was a fluke. That was too easy. I got some sort of garbage round of <laughs> Jeopardy! That was just really easy or really, they just, I got the defective one in the batch. And then I won the second one. I go, that one was also easy. Uh, okay, I got two defective batches. <laughs> and I won the third one. And then imposter syndrome started to melt away. And I go, what if, now hear me out, other Austin, what if you're actually just good at this? And then I won the fourth one. I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm just good at this. That's when the fun started, because that's when I'm like, yay, I am good at this and I am having fun. So I didn't care what I wagered. So I didn't care how much I put on the line. So I'm like,
1: wee wee wee! <laughs> that is awesome. I love it. And yeah, and, and I bet you, you just kind of get relaxed and get sort of into the swing of things. Do, do you have any idea? Did they, do they break it down for you? Do you know how many questions you actually answered and got right through that, your time on Jeopardy?
5: All those stats are kept somewhere. I'm sure I can look it up. And uh, I mean, if Jeopardy is nothing, if not statistics, I mean, everything about Jeopardy is statistics and Jeopardy fans are the craziest Mm. fans on earth, other than maybe old timey baseball fans when it comes to keeping statistics.
1: How did you prep for it, Austin? How do you get ready to go on a show like Jeopardy? I mean, it's not like you can just jam pack and and read a bunch of books and hope you're going to do well.
5: Well, yeah, actually, that is a little bit of it, Sue. You sort of got to cram stuff in there that you think are your gaps in knowledge. So uh, luckily, there's tons of finite data sets out there for you to utilize to make sure that at least you're well-grounded in something that will not create an unforced error. And by this, I mean memorize all your state capitals and world capitals and state flowers and lists of chief justices of the United States and best picture winners, and all of those are out there. So you can definitely go and do that. Then for the cramming part, you go in and you – You don't read Great Expectations. You open up the clips notes of Great Expectations and you learn the three main plot points and the four main characters. And you hope they don't name a subsidiary three tiers down character. (laughs) And then you sort of cross your fingers and you put out the the good juju into the universe and hope it comes back.
1: Well, for all of us who wish and dream that we might one day be on Jeopardy but aren't likely to ever reach that, you've come out with a book now to, to kind of help us out. And maybe this is how we, uh, we do our studying. It's called The Ultimate Book of Pub Trivia by the smartest guy in the bar. So uh, how many questions in this and, and how would you even come up with what, what you were going to put in the book?
5: So there's 3,000 questions, uh, curated into 300 individual rounds and, uh, the rounds sort of have this little narrative arc wherein, uh, one round will countermand another round so that everyone feels included. So if I do a round on sports, I'm gonna make some people be like tuning out of of it. So I'll do the next round on something more pop culture to bring other people into the fold. How'd I come up with it is I've been hosting Club Trivia for fifteen years, and in the course of that time I've written something like eighty thousand original questions. So I just went into my archive and I curated these questions. Uh, by bringing them up to date or calling out the ones that were already dated. And then, with the help of editors and fact-checkers, put together this beautiful little book with uh, a very, uh, very wordy title.
1: Yeah. And, I mean, I think it's cool, too. You've got difficulty ratings on each page, and and the, the answers are actually there, too, aren't they?
5: Yeah, the answers are at the bottom of the page, but they're a little bit small, so you can't just know them immediately. So uh, while you're reading the question at the top of the page, you can't like look. You can look down at the answer if you really want, but uh, it's a little bit on the hard side. But this is meant to be uh, read aloud with groups of friends or on a road trip. Or as the appendix of the book in the back says, pub trivia is ultimately a small business. It's designed to put butts in seats on a low revenue night at a local business and amplify revenue. So take the book, knock on the doors of your local bar and read it aloud and start your own trivia night right there at uh, your local bar in Calgary.
1: And perhaps you'll be the next contestant on Jeopardy. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll remind people it's called The Ultimate Book of Pub Trivia by the smartest guy in the bar, Austin Rogers, a Jeopardy all-star, having won 411000 bucks over 12 straight wins. Thank you so much for joining us. Pleasure chatting with you, Austin. Too have a great morning. Thank you, you too. Hey, you can also follow Austin Rogers online on TikTok and Twitter. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcast, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcasts.
0: And tune into Mornings with Sue and Andy from five thirty to nine every weekday morning on seven seventy CHQR.